0: From the Financial Times in London, I'm Sarah O'Connor and this is FT News. There's a big question that's worrying people in all sorts of countries right now, including here in the UK. What on earth do we do about the fact that within countries, some places seem to be doing so badly, even when the national economy is doing pretty well? In the US, people are worried most about the post-industrial heartlands. But here in the UK, the deepest problems seem to be on our coasts, in our old seaside towns. Andy Haldane, the chief economist at the Bank of England, has been thinking a lot about this question recently. He's been touring some of the poorest parts of the UK, and I caught up with him in his office just after he got back from the seaside town of Blackpool and the former coal mining town of Ashington. So you've just been to a place that's close to my heart, Blackpool?
1: Close to my heart too, actually.
0: she so you used to go as a kid?
1: Yeah, yeah, because I... I... You also Northern grew up England. in the North, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was Blackpool or Scarborough.
0: Yeah. That's the amazing thing about Blackpool is that everyone who grew up in the north used to go there for like weekends or holidays. There aren't many other places I know of that so many people feel affectionate towards.
1: No quite so. And yeah. so my dad was a trumpet player. So he used to travel around on the summer season round seaside, oh, holiday yeah, destinations right. play. So it's got an appeal for that reason as well. But it's changed. Um, gracious, it's changed.
0: How did it strike you?
1: Well, the best bits are there, right? All the landmarks are there, and that's terrific. Actually, the beach is a lot cleaner when, than when I used to be there, and the tower and the illuminations. But as you know, the centre of the town is not doing well. That's As tourism's dried up, that's very visible now on the high street and in the centre of the town. I think almost half the guest houses there have been turned into private rental accommodation of charitably speaking mixed quality but housing was quite a key theme of my day there actually hearing a bit about how that evolved and Mm. what needed to improve.
0: Did you go and look at some of the kind of private rented housing stock?
1: I did the council took me to look at some of it I'm not easily shocked but I was really shocked certainly the property I went to was totally uninhabitable someone who doesn't on their regional visits often hang out in drug dens it was quite an education and if, you, if that's your base, you know, you can see why, you know, there's a real sense of insecurity in parts of the town. I'm not suggesting it's, it's all like that. Of course, it's not all like that. But housing is such a kind of foundation of you as a person, of you as a family. And if that foundation, I mean, in Blackpool's case, it isn't a question of lack of quantity. No, it's you the know.
0: opposite problem to, it's to opposite. the problem in the city that we're sitting in now, London, which is it a is. shortage of housing. Actually, there's an oversupply of housing in Blackpool.
1: There's an oversupply. you know. So if you're in London, if you're in Bristol, if you're in Manchester, homelessness problems are acute and, and very visible. There isn't a particular homelessness problem in Blackpool. It's the quality of, in particular, private rental accommodation. You know, it's a pillar that isn't working in parts of Blackpool right now, and a really important pillar. I mean, the more I do of these visits, some common threads always come through that need to work well for towns and cities to work well. And it is housing, schooling, shopping. Shopping sounds a bit weird, but you need a high street with stuff on it that people want to visit.
0: Other than betting shops and payday lending shops. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Schooling, housing, shopping. Transport? Transport, jobs and money, finance. So I think they're the big six and they obviously build on each other.
0: Which also means they can go into a vicious... Spiral of decline on each other, right?
1: Quite so, and I think we as economists, you know, quite a lot of work's being done on what makes places work. What's the secret source for successful cities? We know quite a lot about that now, and it's all the things you'd expect. It is people doing creative things with good transport links and good schools and a funky high street, etc. It's well connected internally. It's well connected externally. But many more places across the UK are lacking. Some, or in some cases, all of the big six. And the question is then, where do you start? I don't think it's enough to pick one of the big six and say, well, we'll go gangbusters on schools. say. Of course, it's terrific if you've got terrific schools. But unless there's a decent high street and some jobs and the ability to get out and about, the people educated in those decent schools aren't going to stick around.
0: They're just going to leave.
1: They're going to ship out.
0: And that's good for them, but it's not necessarily good for everyone who's no great left the behind. the
1: town. And most people, most people don't want to leave. Most people live within five or ten miles of where they were born, and that makes lots of sense for lots of people. It's where their home is, where their family is, where their friends is, where the community are. I
0: always think it's a bit of a council of despair for economists to say to people, well, you should just move. You know, if you've got no opportunities here, then why don't you go to London? There's loads of opportunities in London. Obviously, that's true, but that's quite a thing to say to someone, isn't it, that The only solution is to leave your friends and family behind. It's
1: a terrible thing to say and reflects a complete misunderstanding of how most people are made up. People like roots. They like having roots. They like having somewhere called home. It's really important for their identity and for their security. So it's not going to happen. Now, I do think that it's important, even when you've got those roots... To have some branches. In other words, the ability to go out and see other things and experience other things, other people, I think that's really important as well, which is why the transport thing is so important. And what's interesting about, you know, we live on a pretty small island geographically, but sometimes you go to places that feel like they're miles away from anywhere, even though in a geographical sense they're not. So when I'm in Ashington, as I was last week, you know, it's only 15 miles from Newcastle. Newcastle's really buzzy. It's really a terrific example of a city on the rise, on the move. Yeah, but since they shut the railway, 64, courtesy of Dr Beeching, who being neither forgotten nor forgiven for that, Newcastle feels a million miles away for people in Ashington. Getting there takes yonks on the bus and is expensive.
0: And they're infrequent, those buses. I mean, they never get you to a job at the time that you need to be there or take you home from a shift at the time you need to finish that shift.
1: Quite so. And one of the nice things about Blackpool is that, I mean, they are now finished electrifying the line to Manchester, and that will cut the travel time, I think, to about an hour. Do you
0: think that might make a difference?
1: I hope so. I mean, it's definitely directionally right. Could I see Blackpool as a sort of satellite commuter town for Manchester? Maybe. I think that, you know, people have a real warmth towards Blackpool. It's got a seaside location. You look at someone like Margate in Kent, regeneration and market income, the seafront's been redeveloped. So could I see that for Blackpool? Yeah, I think I probably could.
0: So what needs to happen to allow that to transpire? Because for the last sort of 10, 20 years, if anything, Blackpool's been sliding in the other direction.
1: I don't know the answer to that. In some ways, for me, that probably is the largest of the economic issues facing UK PLC right now. And not just
0: the UK, I mean, this question of what to do with fringes, whether economic or geographical, that are falling behind developed economies, I mean, that's a big question in the US, in
1: Europe. And, you know, there's a natural gravitational pull, isn't there, towards the hubs, the cities that are doing well, because they're full of energy and they're growing and thriving. You have to seek out the spokes as well as the hubs in societies, in economies, to get a rounded picture of what's going on and actually in terms of what's needed policy-wise, identify and speak the structural issues that are holding back the spokes in the economy, which by the way is where most people live.
0: Do you think that challenge is going to become more urgent? Because one of the things I worry about, as you know, I write quite a lot about automation and the impact that might have on the labour market in the years to come. And I think it's not unreasonable to think that some of the areas that will be most hard hit by the first wave of automation might well be the same areas that were hit by the last big wave of globalisation. And so all of those former coal mining towns that switched to jobs in call centres, for example, right. could kind of get hit all over again. Do we need to learn lessons from what we did wrong last time? in terms of appreciating the kind of differential, geographical impact of economic shocks?
1: I think the answer to that has to be a resounding yes, because we think that the extent of the hollowing out of the jobs market from what is to come, from the fourth industrial revolution, could easily be wider and deeper than that which resulted from the first three industrial revolutions. Its hollowing tends to hit most those in the mid-skill professions, as you know. But if it's wider and deeper, then everyone's going to be part of that. And this will be another wave hitting some communities that haven't remotely adjusted to the effects of the previous waves. I mentioned Ashington. So Ashington is home to the world's most advanced paint manufacturing company. Wow. Uh, I've got no way of verifying this, Sarah, but... That's what they told you. That's what, you know, That's uh, I can quite believe it. That's great. That's good news. Here's the bad news. It only employs 150 people because it's the most advanced paint manufacturing.
0: Yeah. Which is great for productivity, great Great for for innovation.
1: But not great for jobs unless you're one of the lucky 150. I don't want to be pessimistic at all, actually, because in all of these places, there is tremendous community spirit and energy. It's the flip side of having roots and having Mm. a home, right? And that's a real source of optimism.
0: Yeah. When Um, I wrote about Blackpool at the end of last year, that was something that I really wanted to convey. I'm not sure if I actually managed to, because lots of people, having read that feature that I wrote, said, oh, gosh, that was so depressing. And actually, I didn't want it to be depressing. The point I was trying to make was, we need to stop being fatalistic about parts of this country. We need to stop just saying it's so depressing, you know, we've just got to let it wither and die because there's no hope. It's actually, people in Blackpool are not hopeless, And Blackpool is not hopeless. And the point is that we need to find ways to help people to make things better.
1: That's absolutely right. Uh, My sense is, Sarah, relative to even a few years ago, we have a much greater sense of what might need to be done. Now, doing it is another thing entirely and will take time and money. But I don't think there's any longer any sense of not knowing where the problems lie.
0: Mm. I think Brexit might have had something to do with that. Just in kind of waking yeah. people up to some of these issues.
1: I think, I think you're right. But yes, yeah. I think several things have nudged people in that direction. Of course, and the yeah. evidence base around this is now becoming more compelling too. Yeah. In the US and in the UK, how if a sector, if an industry gets lost, it takes time for new roots to sprout. In fact, it takes generations. And guess what? Sometimes, even time isn't a healer because you need to find some way of kickstarting. Spiral that you mentioned uh, earlier on, and that probably requires a set of interventions on a localized basis. You know, because each of these towns, these cities, there are some common features, but there are always local idiosyncrasies.
0: And as a central banker, you know, we're sitting here in the Bank of England, and one of your important jobs is to go in and vote on what the level of interest rates should be.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How difficult does it make your job that there are such different economies within this one economy that is the United Kingdom because I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that central London where we're sitting now feels like a different country to central Blackpool.
1: Well as you know we only set one interest rate for the whole country so we can't set different interest rates for Blackpool and Birmingham but that's not a reason not to want to get out and about and as far away from where we sit today as possible all the time. And that we do, as you know, on a pretty intensive basis. We have 12 regional agencies. Historically, that's had a big skew, as you know, Sarah, towards companies. And now that's what I've been changing. And that's what these visits are really all about. Seeing things through different lenses. They can tell you very important things about how the agri economy is functioning. When I go, as I did a you know, couple of years now, to, to Nottingham and talk about recovery to a set of charities, and they stop me. After one sentence, to say, what are you talking about, Andy? That sets you back on your heels a bit, really, and makes you think. And it turns out, after that, I go home, I look at the data regionally, and at, at that point, the recovery, in terms of output having got back to its pre-crisis level, that was only true of London the South East. Everywhere else, including Nottingham, was still sitting below water. So sometimes it tells you things about the economy that you, it prompts you to go back and relook at the numbers. But often it's not just about the numbers, it's the colour and the story, it's the narrative that accompanies it. So I've spent great chunks of my life, for example, here, worrying about inflation, the cost of inflation. I couldn't tell you how many academic articles I've read, indeed written a few, on the cost of inflation. But i tell you, and he really understood it when I was down in Wales at the end of last year, when someone said, you know, didn't put it like this, but you know, my consumption basket is food and energy. The prices of both have gone up a lot. That's really bad news for me, Andy. Because I face a hard choice between, in this case, heating or eating. Yeah, that bit hasn't been in many of the academic articles I've read or written. And very important that we experience, or at least learn about, those sorts of costs first hand. It underscores the importance of what we do for a living. So, even when, you know, as is often the case, the bank hasn't got the tools of the trade to fix a housing problem, we don't build houses, we don't build schools, we don't build shops, but we can try and keep the job situation stable, the prices situation stable, the financial situation stable. And that's a pretty big contribution because when that goes wrong in a way that affects the poorest people in society most. Inflation is a terribly regressive tax, and loss of access to money is a terribly regressive tax, and us doing our job well means that that regressivity is, is, if not ironed out completely, then reduced. I'm a great believer, you know, that this strand of economics, which in some ways is sort of economics catching up with where sort of sociology and psychology were about 40 years ago, and narrative economics, we all make sense of the world through stories, always have always will it's what humans do for a living how else are you to make sense of the world other than through stories and usually simple ones and singular ones it cannot hold kind of multiple narratives in your head it's too complicated you know very interesting research now on the importance of those narratives in shaping the fortunes of the economy particularly during recessions and depressions but also during booms you know because exuberance and optimism spread across individuals and so do Such as pessimism and depression, never more so than now, actually, in a world of social media where people's emotions and views pass instantaneously and across geographical boundaries. So the power of social narrative in shaping people's worldviews and decisions has never been greater and has always been great. And understanding people's narratives about the economy is therefore really important for us. You can call it sentiment if you want, but... It's hard gauging people's sentiment. Surveys often do it very imprecisely because, you know, it's a certain type of someone who fills in a survey. And often it's answering very contrived questions, you know, framed questions that don't really speak to what people feel. And I've not found a better way of tapping into, a kind of window on people's souls than turning up and listening to what they have to say. It's not a survey, so you're not a very scientific one, but I can't think of a better one. And that's why we're doing it.
0: Andy, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Sean. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,